service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. All right, happy 4th of July, discos. We are celebrating with part two of our America Fuck Yeah clip show extravaganza because America is the greatest country in the world. That's a fact. How do I know? Because Whitney Houston told us so back on January 27th, 1991. The F-16s couldn't compete with the performance they had to follow. Normally, the F-16 flyover at any event is the showstopper, but not at Super Bowl 25 in 1991. Not after Whitney Houston, whose performance of the Star-Spangled Banner during the time of America's first Gulf War, a time of fervent patriotism, a moment where the words of our national anthem carried particular weight. Whitney Houston delivered them effortlessly on the back of the infamously difficult-to-sing melody. There were no extraneous notes, there was no reaching, no hiding high notes under low octaves. It was more like what the F-16s were trying to achieve. Power, grace, defying nature. Whitney Houston was a natural. Her voice seemed physiologically designed to deliver soaring anthemic pop melodies to the widest audience possible. Clive Davis recognized this the first time he heard her sing at that little shithole in the village at a show set up by Jerry Griffith, Aristus head of A&R. Jerry was put onto Whitney by her mom, Sissy, who, when she saw Clive, was quick to remind him that they'd met years earlier while they were both working with Aretha Franklin. Whitney called Aretha Aunt Bree. And like her most famous aunt, Whitney's mom, Sissy, was a gospel and soul singer as well. Aretha. Clive missed his chance with her. He got to her too late. She'd already been too established as the powerhouse diva that she was. The queen of soul, too black, too strong. 
America already knew her as one thing. It wasn't going to buy the pop makeover. Same thing went for Whitney's cousin, Dionne Warwick, Sissy's niece, and another former employer. By the time Clive showed up, Dion had too much of that Burt Bacharach sheen on her. She was too well-known a commodity and, frankly, not young or exciting enough for the pop market. But 19-year-old Whitney Houston? Sure. She'd been born into the drug-torn streets of Newark, New Jersey, but her parents were in the business and moved the family out to suburban Orange. The drugs followed from Newark and Whitney, who was being raised in the church with that gospel energy and guidance, managed to keep her nose clean for the most part. In 1983, Clive Davis was one of the power brokers in the music industry. He'd taken control of Columbia Records when Whitney was still in diapers, and by 83 had consolidated his power at Arista Records. He was in the market for a fresh talent that he could make into a star. Whitney Houston was perfect. So I'm going to contextualize this mainly for the international listeners of Disgraceland out there, but um, Americans will know what I'm talking about. Americans, as Americans, we are we are bullshit artists, okay? We love a tall tale, a good narrative. Watch the news lately. It's all fucking narrative. It's all just advertising, people selling us what they want us to buy. These days, it's division. But back in the late 60s, the early 70s, it was a utopian dream of communalism, but was ultimately just a giant load of American bullshit being sold to the world by the baby boomers concerning their beloved Woodstock. Don't believe me? The data and the facts back me up. Here's what I mean. Woodstock, the original Woodstock, was a literal disaster declared so on its first day by the state of New York. Yet the lasting image of Woodstock is one of idyllic harmony. Woodstock was born of violence, sparked into existence out of Michael Lang's Mexican standoff with hillbilly armed guards and cops from down in Florida. And there were fights on stage, armed, black-shirted hippie Gestapo on patrol, and most notably, two dead kids on record. Yet the word on Woodstock was it was born out of and demonstrative of an ethos of peace. Woodstock's organizers, even Michael Lang, were, from the beginning, driven by profit. Yet the word on Woodstock was it was an anti-commercial venture conceived out of communalism. But hell, even the 1960s countercultural radicals, the most anti-commercial among the hippie movement, avowed Marxists led by Abby Hoffman extorted Woodstock organizers for tens of thousands of dollars in cash. Woodstock is hailed as an improbable organizational achievement that showed the power of young people coming together en masse in service of a higher ideal a common good. Yet festival organizers nearly mass-electrocuted hundreds of thousands of kids due to their poor planning. So strong was their fear of this possible deadly outcome that one organizer broke down on the scene and pledged to kill himself. So how, then, did we end up with this accepted narrative that Woodstock 69 was vastly different than Woodstock 99? How, then, did we wind up believing all these years in the hippie dream, in 60s idealism? It's permeated our cultural power centers ever since. 60s idealism since Woodstock has transcended politics, sports, art, academia, film, television, media, and of course, music. But why? If Woodstock was such a disaster, why is its legacy so strong? Something else, something good, something ideal? Simple. Because unlike Woodstock 99, the original Woodstock had a better movie. Concert films don't sell. But Woodstock, the movie, sold, grossing $50 million in its original box office run and earning universal critical acclaim. Why? Because Woodstock, the movie, isn't a concert film. It's a love story. 
Actually, it's a love letter to the 60s generation. At every turn, the film highlights the good from the festival and ignores the bad, or should I say, the reality. Creatively, there is no shame in that. The director, Michael Wadley, had a point of view and he expressed it in the editing room, going so far as to say so himself, saying in 1994, quote, I saw this as a sort of back to the land, back to the garden, beautiful event. If you look at the film that I edited, the whole film then created this kind of mythology. What was the real Woodstock and what was the mythological, unquote. The film is an idealized version of the events that took place that weekend in Bethel, New York in August of 1969. It is not what really happened. If the director were to make a realistic movie about Woodstock, the film would have been a disaster movie because the entire weekend on balance was fraught with tension, violence, near death, actual death, chaos, and destruction. Peppered in, there was of course some great music and I'm sure some good times, but this notion that Woodstock was a generation-defining moment so significant that it marked actual, real change for generations to come is complete and total bullshit. Nothing changed. Soldiers remained in Vietnam for another six years. In the next presidential election, Republican Richard Nixon, scourge of the hippie generation, was elected in the biggest presidential landslide in modern times, winning 49 of 50 states, declaring with authority what the majority of Americans actually felt about peace, love, and the vaunted ideals of the 60s. Nixon later resigned in disgrace, and his Republican replacement, Gerald Ford, was defeated in 1976 by Democrat Jimmy Carter in what was no doubt a rebuke of Nixon's party, but 12 years of Republican rule followed after Carter, the first quote-unquote rock and roll president. Numbers don't lie, but films do. Which is why the legacy of Woodstock, the baby boomers, the 60s, is so strong. It's why after two disastrous festivals, Woodstock 69 and 99, not to even mention the rainy blip on the cultural radar that was Woodstock 94, which was essentially a Lollapalooza knockoff, Michael Lang was once again given the opportunity to produce yet another Woodstock in 2019. But alas, that effort completely failed. Good old hippie planning finally caught up to Woodstock. Hey Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month. Five bucks. 
or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. So it's hard to find a better musical example of the mid-20th century teenage American mythology than that of the Beach Boys, specifically the Beach Boys' Dennis Wilson. I tried to get close to this idea in our Beach Boys episode. I got somewhere near the target. I'm not sure where. Um, I'm still fascinated by this dude, and I'm still fascinated with this time in American history. Uh, Check it out. Let me know what you think. Sam Cooke had been dead for almost four years, but his cherry red Ferrari was very much alive, and at the moment in 1968, its new owner, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, was using it to tear the ass off of the two-lane blacktop out on the PCH. Dennis downshifted the Ferrari's powerful engine as soon as he saw them. Two hippie girls, one pregnant, both attractive, young, with their thumbs outstretched on the side of the road. Pacing backwards, slowly, cut off jeans, stems for days, bare feet, visible dirt on their skin, loose flower children blouses, matted hair, sexy as fuck. Dennis slowed the car to the curb, popped open the passenger side door, both girls hopped in. Dennis flashed that gazillion watt dumb beach bum smile. Hippie hearts melted. First gear, it's all right. Second gear, out of sight. Spitting tires, spitting sand, squealing rubber, and they were off. In no time, they were pulling into his driveway, but it was well understood before the front door of Dennis's Sunset Boulevard bachelor pad even opened. They were going to fuck. And so they did. And for Dennis, one of Hollywood's most notorious stickmen, the sex was revelatory. It tapped into something within him that he didn't know was there. Since splitting with his wife, Carol, the sex Dennis had been having as of late Despite its randomness, despite its wildness, it had grown stale. Groupies, hitchhiking hippies, aspiring starlets, even bona fide stars, Catherine Deneuve, Jane Seymour, and Goldie Hawn among them. He had been having so much sex so often and with so many different partners that it all seemed to blend together. In 1968, sex for Dennis Wilson was more like masturbation, ordinary, rote, functionary. But sex with these two filthy hippies was something else entirely. It was like they'd been trained by a master to serve, but not just to cater, to connect. Dennis was lost in the menage a trois, completely out of his head. To the unenlightened, his state during sex could be described as being unconscious. But as the enlightened, as the contrarian gurus, as the teachers and the seekers, the Maharishi and Gurdjieff and that fucking blockhead cousin of his and singer in his band, Mike Love, as they would all agree, it wasn't unconsciousness, it was peak consciousness. It was more than sex. It was transcendent. When it was over, Dennis wiped himself off, threw on his jeans and t-shirt, and split for his brother Brian's studio. He had a recording session that night. He told the girls to hang tight at his pad. He'd be back for round two in a couple hours. In 1968, the Beach Boys were in a tenuous state. They had experienced near-immediate chart-topping success when they hit the scene in 1963. But by 68, all the vertigo of their ride to the top had finally hit and they were reeling. Inspired by Dennis's genuine embodiment of the Southern California surfer life, filtered through the musical genius of his older brother Brian, 
It guided to their initial recording contract by the Wilson brothers' overbearing and meddling father, Murray. The Beach Boys had built a throne out of surf rock on the west coast of America, just as the Beatles were building their own parallel throne out of Britpop on the west coast of England. And then, almost simultaneously, both bands transcended their pop roots, shed their skins, and remade themselves as countercultural visionaries. Murray, the old man, was out as manager. So were the skinny ties and candy-striped matching suits. Brian's compositions grew more operatic and experimental. The 60s, or at least what we talk about when we talk about the 60s, had arrived. Cosmic Americana, Graham Parsons' vision of America. It's one of the most compelling American visions that I've ever come across in all my studies of music history or even just American history. And the way that Graham expressed it, specifically, you know, in song, of course, uh, the way it was manifest in his music, but the way he expressed it one night in Los Angeles, it's filled with all of the elements that made Graham Parsons, Graham Parsons, all the soulfulness, the wasted pretty poetry, and of course, the drunken comedy. Having grown up in Waycross, Georgia, Graham was steeped in the exact type of traditional American music that had utterly captivated the Rolling Stones and rock and roll's second generation of artists, the Beatles, Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, and more. There was something about that music and where it came from, where Graham came from, that was endlessly compelling. That music was class music, lower class music, and its originators, the old blues and country singers, knew real pain and misery, and the music they created was forged through that hardship. Graham came up in that same area of the country, the South, Georgia, and though he was white and raised in a wealthy family, he knew of deep, deep hardship, losing kind. When he was 12 years old, his father took his own life. On December 23, 1958, ruined Christmas forever for Graham when he raised a 38 revolver to his temple and pulled the trigger. And on the day of Graham's high school graduation, his mother died of cirrhosis of the liver, having drank herself to death. 18 years old with two dead parents, the grief from his father's suicide was unprocessed. The trauma from his mother's death calcified Graham's grief into a state of ever-present pain. Alternately, Throughout the rest of his short life, he would use music and drugs to run the grief down. Sometimes the results were undeniably great, as they were with the output from his first group, the International Submarine Band, that he put together during his brief time attending Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and later when lending his country singing and songwriting talents to the very well-established American folk rock group, The Birds, on their album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo an album that did as much for 70s mainstream rock and roll as any other critically acclaimed or commercially received album before or since its release, Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline included, to say nothing of what the album did for another generation of alternate rockers three decades later. But whatever creative strides Graham Parsons made, they were consistently marred by the inconsistency and output that his drug use created. Unlike Mick and Keith, who, despite whatever drugs or drink they were on, never lost sight of the goal, to make great, earth-shattering, culture-defining rock and roll, Graham would let the booze, the heroin, the pills, the acid eat him up 
and completely derail whatever progress his music had made for him in his career. But still, undisciplined lout that he sometimes was, he was mostly a sweetheart, and to everyone not named Mick Jagger, fun to be around. Phil Kaufman took to him instantly. Later that night, after the Flying Burrito Brothers gig at the Corral, Graham, his band, Phil, Keith, Mick, and the rest of their entourage made it back to the home the Stones were renting in the Hollywood Hills. It was late. Keith had disappeared, and so had Mick, and the party was dying down. Graham was out back with the writer, Stanley Booth, who was traveling with the Stones. He, too, was from Waycross, Georgia, where Graham had grown up. Such was the cosmic thrust of rock and roll. Two Waycross boys, relatively the same age, who'd grown up breathing the same air, but who'd never met. Thrust together amidst ascending British stars some 3,000 miles from home, under Hollywood's vampire moon, sharing a joint and looking out over the glittery sunset strip. Phil stood near, quietly sipping a Schlitz and listening to the two Southern boys talk. Look at it, man, Graham said. They call it America. They call it civilization. They call it television. They believe in it and salute it and sing songs to it and eat and sleep and die still believing in it and, and I don't know. Graham paused and pulled again from the joint before continuing. And then, man, sometimes the Mets come along and win the World Series. Phil Kaufman would learn this was just like Graham. Poetic in one moment, approaching greatness and then devolving into nonsense. Graham Parsons needed help, and Phil Kaufman was just the guy to give it to him. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. You know, in uh, part one of this America Fuck Yeah clip show extravaganza celebrating the 4th of July, we, we did a little bit on... Uh, our Ron Pigpen McKernan episode. Pigpen, of course, from The Grateful Dead. Um, and we're back into the dead here in part two because The Grateful Dead, they might be the greatest American rock band of all time. And America was uniquely responsible for giving the world The Grateful Dead. In no other country, here's what I mean, in no other country could the dead have spawned. They were, uh, they were of America. And America's greatest attribute, freedom, is what, in my opinion, did the Grateful Dead in The Freedom Monster. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you The Freedom Monster. And that's all the dead wanted, to be free. And that was the whole point. Jerry Garcia and his bandmates saw The Grateful Dead as being wholly American. And wasn't that what America was all about? Freedom? The freedom to do what you want? To be who you want? Live how you want? For the band, up until this point, it had worked. They'd avoided the straight world their entire adult lives and created something totally unique. And that thing inspired millions to reject a society that they believed infringed upon their freedom. So Deadheads followed the band on tour, lived off the grid, outside of society's clutches and by their own code. Freedom. Absolute. Just as they had seen the band live for their entire career. So the band played on. And for most of their time as a band, despite the copious amounts of drugs they were on, they sounded great and achieved a state of musical transcendence through improvisation that no band before or since has ever achieved in rock music. But don't take my word for it. Lenny Kay, guitar player for the great Patti Smith group, literally one of the coolest and most influential guitarists ever, said of the Grateful Dead, 
that their music touches on ground that most other groups don't even know exists. Lenny was right, but that sacred ground was seldom reached by the time the early 90s had rolled around. Musically, despite their success, they were a walking corpse. But to deadheads, it didn't matter. The music wasn't as important as the lifestyle, a roving carnival, Ken Kesey's merry pranksters by way of P.T. Barnum. Deadheads were chasing an experience, an idea, something they heard their cooler older brothers and sisters talk about, something they too needed to experience, something they'd never quite be able to grasp and would destroy millions of brain cells chasing through football stadium parking lots and European hostels in search of. Capturing it didn't matter, so long as they remained free in their pursuit. But now, what the band had created was so big, so encompassing, that it had become a prison of their own making, and Jerry Garcia felt it the most. After all, he was the mayor of Crazy Town, the jolly psychedelic teddy bear that fans looked up to, emulated, wanted to be, and worshipped, having literally elevated him to godlike status. It freaked him out. He became even more shut in and descended deeper into hard drug use, which was making it harder to deliver night after night and harder to bear the weight of responsibility that he felt for his bandmates who counted on him, for the fans who believed in him, and for the Grateful Dead's expansive crew and their families, over 50 and counting, who relied on him. He couldn't just quit and let them all down. He couldn't fuck off at night after a show and walk the city streets to clear his head. He couldn't even go for a ride in his Beamer or be driven around by his bodyguard and his caddy. He'd be recognized, harassed, arrested, or worse. The only place he was safe was the stage, and that had become a rough slog. The crowds were so massive that making any connection with the audience was near impossible. It was so unlike the acid test, and a far cry even from Playboy After Dark, and it wasn't like Garcia could dose a stadium of 60,000. Besides, Osley was long gone, so there was nothing left but blues in the key of bum the fuck out. Garcia was trapped, imprisoned, by the freedom monster he had created. So you guys have been with me for a while here on this Disgraceland trip. We've released over 100 episodes. You know that I steer clear of modern politics and Disgraceland because it's my opinion that politics are, in fact, the opiate of the masses. It's a dirty business, folks, and rock and roll is dirty enough. But I am a flawed man, okay? I am not perfect. Sometimes I can't resist. And the absurdity of then-President Donald Trump and ASAP Rocky, a match that, of course, could only be made in America was too good for me to pass up. Have a listen. The President of the United States, one of the most polarizing and contradictory figures in the history of the world. A guy who toggled between state dinners in the mud of modern-day digital media with nonsensical Grandpa Simpson Twitter rants. A dude who could charm you, offend you, make a pass at you, insult you. A dude who could steal from you, provide for you, cut you off, cut your taxes, grab your pussy, call you a pussy, bring back coal, blow off Davos. A dude who would bait you into an argument over race and then sign a prison reform bill while you weren't looking. This dude had decided to enter into the fray to help free ASAP Rocky. Of course he did. Because Kim Kardashian and her husband, Kanye West, who claimed to be Trump's illegitimate son, who also claimed to be Yeezus, which would make Trump Yahweh? Because the two of them, Kim and Kanye, reached out to the president using the only leverage besides money that Trump respected, celebrity, to press him to help get ASAP Rocky out of that Swedish jail cell and back home. Trump didn't need to be asked twice. 
He discarded his black hat, donned his red cape, I mean red tie, and sprang into action using his favorite weapon of choice, Twitter. And the tweets shot off in 280 character rounds. Just spoke to Kanye West about his friend ASAP Rocky's incarceration. I will be calling the very talented Prime Minister of Sweden to see what we can do about helping ASAP Rocky. So many people would like to see this quickly resolved. End tweet. And a few days later, after the very talented Prime Minister of Sweden did not react the way the president wanted, and while ASAP remained locked up, Trump fired again. Very disappointed in Prime Minister Stefan Löfven for being unable to act. Sweden has let our African-American community down in the United States. I watched the tapes of ASAP Rocky, and he was being followed and harassed by troublemakers. Treat Americans fairly. Hashtag free Rocky. End tweet. And later that day, another shot with another tactic. Leverage. Give ASAP Rocky his freedom. We do so much for Sweden, but it doesn't seem to work the other way around. Sweden should focus on its real crime problem. Hashtag free Rocky. End tweet. Twitter, of course, blew up, as did the rest of the media. Don King shrugged and tuned into Fox. Al Sharpton called it, but not from behind his desk as a commentator on MSNBC, but back in that helicopter, before ASAP Rocky was even born. Sure, the Rev could wrangle a media circus better than most, but when it came to ringleading the media, Donald Trump was on some other trip completely. So back in the day, Rocky IV was released, okay? And as a kid, I went to see it in the theater at least three times, probably more. And that's saying something because you're a little kid. You don't have your own money. You got to get someone to give you a ride. I'm not even sure what Rocky IV was rated, but I'm pretty sure there was an adult. I had a con to bring me into the damn thing over and over again. And in that movie, James Brown's Living in America, that performance, one of my favorite parts of the movie. As exciting as Rocky's Siberian workout montages, the James Brown kicking it with living in America, full band, full dancing, the whole damn thing. It just blew me away, okay? As a kid, James Brown was America. He was just smacked of America. And it was because of this cameo in this movie, this performance, more than a cameo. And little did I know just how American James's entire story was. That wouldn't come until later when, as an adult, uh, of course, I, I got into James Brown as a fan. And then, you know, it all snapped more fully into perspective when I researched James for the season one finale of Disgraceland. James Brown was the hardest working man in show business. And that work was paying off. He was a millionaire, had his own jet, fur coat, a new Stetson for every day of the week, a traveling hairstylist. His records flew off the shelves and into black and white homes alike. He played upwards of 360 dates a year with multiple shows a day, and his appearances demanded tens of thousands of dollars in fees. And beyond the money, he had influence. To African-Americans, young and old, he was an example of the American dream. A real-life rags-to-riches story with supernatural talent. And by the late 60s, James Brown had positioned himself at great risk to his own personal wealth and standing at the center of the black power movement. James Brown invested his money in black businesses, black neighborhoods, and invested his time into black causes. His hit, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, in 1968 America, literally changed the country's social dynamic. All of a sudden, 
young African-Americans were proudly embracing their heritage and like Mr. Brown, growing their hair out for that natural look and leaving behind the white-influenced rebel-without-a-cause processed pomp. And he did all this while at the height of his musical powers, with his bands The Famous Flames and then The JBs. James Brown wouldn't just challenge musical genres, he would invent them. Soul out of necessity, funk on purpose, and hip-hop as a matter of influence. But by the 70s, success was starting to slip. The IRS was in relentless pursuit of his unreported millions. President Richard Nixon had managed to get Mr. Brown's tax charges bounced down from criminal to civil court, but it wasn't enough. The taxmen do take their bite, and Nixon's affiliation had the added disadvantage of alienating a large part of James Brown's black audience. James Brown would never come to understand why. He supported Nixon because Nixon believed in self-reliance, in socioeconomic independence, the very ideas that James Brown saw as keys to his own success, a sentiment that in the late 80s suddenly had new meaning compared to when it was written in 1970. Without salaried muscle, getting it himself was the only option. So, on the morning of September 24th, 1988, James Brown, high on PCP and weed, grabbed the shotgun out of his pickup truck and opened the door of the office adjacent to his, an office full of white insurance men and women who quickly grew terrified of this wild-eyed, past his prime, high as holy hell, shotgun-wielding black power superstar. All right, that does it for our two-part America Fuck Yeah 4th of July clip show extravaganza. Of course, all these episodes are available in the Disgraceland archive. Please revisit them at your leisure. And of course, happy 4th of July, everybody. Rock and roll.